I want to look at just uh, uh, a very simple subject matter tonight. I want you to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, uh, just about halfway through your Bible, just a small, small book. Uh, but while you're turning there, uh, I know it takes a little longer maybe to find it. It's not a book that you hear preach from very often. It's one of the four books of wisdom in the Bible. And I want to look at just a few things out of this. Uh, I really encourage you to read the entire chapter. And, uh, but yet there's some things that I feel compelled to stress to you tonight. I want to look at the subject. This is better than that. This is better than that. Well, you're finding the, uh, I'm going to focus in on four key verses here in a minute, but while you're finding that chapter, the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes, uh, Ecclesiastes is so different from the book of Proverbs. And that's the two main books of wisdom that we focus in on. But it is so different because Proverbs is written really, uh, the wisdom is presented with positive statements. It's not a lengthy exhortation uh, and it doesn't really tie to other verses. Some of the verses stand alone and a single verse is just a positive statement of wisdom. But when you get to Ecclesiastes, it is not written like Proverbs, which is positive statements. Ecclesiastes is written out of negative experiences because life is filled both with positive and negative. Now, I know that if you study these books out, you'll hear a dozen different uh, analogies as to when these were written. I'm just gonna tell you what I believe. You're entitled to disagree if you want, but I believe this book was written by Solomon and I believe it was written after Proverbs. I think the Song of Solomon was probably written in his youth. Uh, Proverbs was probably written in his middle age and chronologically, uh, from Jewish history, he wrote these words in Ecclesiastes probably two years before he died. So he's at the end of life when he's writing these words. Do you know that you look at things differently as you go through stages of your life? But what really makes this book, to me, it's one of the more difficult books in the Bible to understand because God allows the penman that he used to write not only the words that was from his mouth, but he allowed them to put their thoughts to pen and paper as well. And with that, you get sometimes the word of the Lord speaking, and sometimes you get how someone is interpreting life. Now, the reason that a lot of folks will disagree with why I mentioned that this is the last of his writings is because I believe that this particular book was written by a man, Solomon, who knew the Lord, loved the Lord, but turned from the Lord. And you can say, why preacher, you can't prove that he turned from the Lord. Oh, with all of the strange women that he loved. 
and the immorality that he was involved in, he definitely turned from the Lord at the end of his life. So really, these are the words of a man that has been close to God, has experienced the hand of God, and has now let the influence of the lust of his flesh pull him away from God, and he starts looking at the situations of life. And when you get to a place that you no longer look at life through spiritual eyeglasses, and you start looking at it, combining the word of God with your personal experiences, you can get very confused. And he makes some statements here. Anytime I study a passage in in the Bible, the first thing that I look for, I look for the key to that passage. Every passage has a key. Usually it's found in a particular word or a particular phrase. And the key is what unlocks the understanding of that portion of scripture. Sometimes you find the key at the front door, the very first verse. Sometimes you find it at the back door, the very last verse. Sometimes it's hidden on a shelf amongst the verses. And really, when you look at it, it doesn't take you long to figure out what the key is to this chapter. Let's look at the key. And, and when I read these verses to me, to you, I ask you to, to join with me and ask yourself this question. What phrase seems to appear in all of these verses? And I think you'll find the key. It'll jump out at you. Verse three. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Verse six. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Look in verse nine. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Verse 13. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. Did you see it? Better. Better. And you'll find out that each one of those four, he puts them into a category where there are two scenarios. And he asks himself the question, which one is better? And you'll find out that in each one of those, he winds up saying, this is better than that. It's just like you and your life when you're saved and everything comes against you and you feel like that the enemy is winning out some way, all you have to do is look back to what you were before Christ and look back at where you are with, and look now at where you are with Christ and it doesn't take you very long to say, my worst day with the Lord is so far beyond my best day with the devil. This is better than that ever was or ever could be. And that's what he's saying. When you look at life, weigh it all out and sometimes the enemy will try to make something look better, but it's really not better. So what is better? What are these four things that's better? What's he talking about in verse three when he says, yea, better is he than both they. What's both? 
What's the two that he's referring to? Well, if you'll look in verse one, I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. In other words, I looked at every injustice that anyone has ever faced. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed and they had the next two words, no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, but they had, and he repeats it, no comforter. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. You know what he's saying? He's saying, it looks like the dead are better off than the living because at least the dead are out of the oppressions that they're facing in life. And that's what he tries to sum up. He's saying that you know there's a time in your life where it looks like you'd have been better off if you'd never been born, just like Job said. The devil will make you think the world's a better place without you and that you're better off dead than you are alive. But let me tell you something. I'd rather be alive than dead any day. This is better than that. Now we know what's waiting on the other side, but he's talking about people here that do not know the Lord. If you are lost, you ought to cherish every day that you have because this is as good as it's ever gonna get for you. This life is all there is. Now for us that are saved, we know there's something beyond death that's better than all of it. But he's talking about someone that has turned on the Lord and he's saying death looks better than life. Why? Because living, they have no comforter. He's saying they just want a little relief. They want a little help and they can't find any help. And because of that, they're better off dead. That's what the devil wants people to think. That's his key to leading people to suicide. Because they're convinced they're better off dead than they are alive but he said they can't find any comfort. And when they can't find any comfort, then those thoughts, they, they continue to grow and they get bigger and bigger in their mind. Do you know the word comforter or comforters appears nine times in the Old Testament? Do you know the word comforter appears four times in the New Testament? In the Old Testament, you search it out when you go home. In the Old Testament, Every time that the word comforter or comforters in the plural is mentioned out of all nine times, it was people that looked for comforters, but there was none. They couldn't find any comfort. Every case, the comforter was afar off. Oh, that I could find comfort. And they couldn't find it. They searched for it, but never found it. But in the New Testament, on all Four occasions, the comforter will come, the comforter has come, he will not leave you comfortless. He's saying in the New Testament, we found what they were looking for in the Old Testament. You may say, preacher, I'm in, I'm in life and facing all of these things. Why is it better for me as a Christian facing all of this? Why is it better for me to press on? Because you can lean on the comforter. God says you're not going through it alone. He's with you every step of the way. 
It's better because we can lean on the comforter. In verse, in verse five or verse six, better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation. He says sometimes you're better off to have one handful as to have two handfuls. It all depends on what you have in your hands. He describes two categories here. Verse four, he said, consider all travail and very right work, and every right work, that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. He's talking about somebody in verse four that is a workaholic. They just work and work and work and work to get more stuff that they don't need, to buy things that they don't need, to impress friends that they don't like. They're keeping up with the Joneses and the only problem is the Joneses keep getting more. And they never catch up. And he said they work and work and work and the more they get, they're never satisfied. They feel, they feel both hands, but they're unsatisfied. The very next verse, he said there's two extremities here. One is the workaholic. There's people tonight that should be in church but they're filling their hands full of things that will never satisfy them. And then the very next verse, he says, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. He's saying there's those that work to get more. They fill both hands up and then there's those that won't turn their hand over. They're so stinking lazy. They fold their hands and just will not turn their hand over. They get up an hour early every day just so they can loaf an hour longer in the day. They're lazy. And I'm telling you, the end result, the thing that will hinder the end time church more than anything else is professing Christians that are lazy. Too lazy to pray, too lazy to come to church, too lazy to invite others. That is the curse of our generation. And let me say this, the workers are going on fast and it's time for somebody to say, God needs first priority in my life more than all these other things and I need to put God first because you're folding your hands and letting someone else do the work and you'll never be satisfied. So he says, we're better first of all because we can lean on a comforter. We're better, second of all, because we live with contentment. Not having enough is miserable. Having too much is misery. People that have too much, they live in fear that someone's going to take it away. Constantly, they work and strive, and the end result is they can't find balance. He's saying you need to be balanced. You ought to thank God for what he's given to you. Do you appreciate the fact that God put bread on your table today and that God has given you health and strength and God has allowed you to be in his house tonight? Do you appreciate the fact that God's provided your needs? You had an automobile to come to church in tonight and the Lord's given you a place to live and a bed to lay your head on. Do you know there's a lot of people in this world that don't have those things? Learn that contentment with godliness is great gain. Be thankful for what he's given. The next thing that he says is in verse nine. Two are better 
than one. This is better than that. He says, first of all, we're better off as believers because we lean on a comforter. Second of all, we're better off because we live with contentment. Thirdly, we're better off because we labor with a companion. Now, this is not just talking about marriage per se. Don't, don't miss that. He's talking about something greater than marriage. He's talking about relationships. No person can be satisfied if they live for themselves and to themselves. Two are better than one. And then you put the Lord with the two. And I'm not, I'm not discrediting the fact that it's part, it's part of marriage. Yes, that's part of it. But he's saying relationships are better than riches. A person that has a true friend. I mean a true friend. We live in a generation where words are cheap. People say they love you, they don't love you. People say they care about you, they don't care about you. They'll say, if you need anything, let me know. They don't mean that. I'm telling you, they don't mean that. If they really cared about you, you wouldn't have to ask. Getting lonely up here now. And now because of this social media generation that we're living in, there's no relationships formed. Everybody says something that somebody doesn't agree with, all of a sudden, you're gone. You're not my friend anymore. I cut you off. I don't want to speak to you. You get a job, you, don't, you, you, you have somebody that says something you don't like, I'm leaving my job. I'm quitting my job. All these Americans quitting their job. Where are they going to? What are they going to live on? How are they going to make it? Preachers constantly, suddenly they feel like all of a sudden that, that I can make it without people. You can't make it without people. The preacher needs people and people needs the preacher. Relationships. You have to have those relationships in life. And we are better off because if we have two, if one falls, the other can help them up. We're better off because we're there to support one another, help one another, love one another. Amen. Relationships. We're better off finally because verse 13, better is a poor and wise child than an old and foolish king Notice the next phrase, who will no more be admonished. We're better off because we lean on the comforter. We're better off because we live in contentment. We're better off because we labor with a companion. And we're better off because we learn with a child's spirit. It's part of a child to be curious and inquisitive. But if you're not careful in your spiritual experience as you get older in the Lord and you get farther down the journey, you won't be able to take admonishment anymore. Instruction. Instruction will offend people. Instruction will cause them to suddenly say, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. They lose that desire to learn more, to, 
say, Lord, what's hidden there for me to find out? And when you learn, when you get to the place that you can learn nothing else, then you've arrived. And when you get to that place, nobody can help you because you quit learning. And you think you're wise, but really that little child has more wisdom than what you have because that little child will ask a hundred questions. You, you have any grandkids or kids that's at that age right now where it's one question after another? I know what you do. Go ask your dad. <laughs> Go ask your mom. But they want to know. And you know, we ought to take this book, God's word, and we ought to say, Lord, I want to know. I want to know more about you. I want to be closer to you. Because this is better than that. This is better than that. Struggles, problems, trials, may I remind you, this is better than that. God's not finished with us yet. And that means that we have more to learn and more to do. If God was finished with you, you'd be in his presence now. But you're here because he's not finished with you. It may mean that things change in your life, that you change gears, but he's not done. He has a work for you to do.